Dave and Doreen, the morning KLH. Good morning, Dave and Doreen, along with Marcus, the morning KLH. Truly an honor to welcome Jeff Skunk Baxter into the studio with us. Skunk, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for your hospitality. We were just talking off the air about your day job. If somebody had told you one day that, like, let's say back in the day, the Doobie Brothers Steely Dan days in the 70s, somebody would say to you, Jeff Skunk, you're going to work for the Department of Defense. You're going to have the highest level of clearance. You're going to be the guy (laughs) that, you know, Lockheed, Boeing, you're going to be right there with the CEOs. You're going to be very key in missile defense in our country. What would you have said to those people? Well, I learned a long time ago that that you you never say no. I mean, I would have said that's interesting, okay. <laughs> but because my dad was you know five years active, twenty years reserve, and um, spent a lot of time with him, mm-hmm. and I kind of figured somewhere down the line there would be a convergence. But you're right. I would have said you're pretty much out of your mind, right? <laughs> and uh, and we have talked to you in the past, and certainly we've all heard the story, but it's so interesting about how you initially got involved with the Department of Defense, and it had something to do with a paper that you wrote or an yeah. idea that you had. What was yeah. the idea? Um, and is it classified? Maybe it's classified. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. They classified the paper, but now the, the actual system is online and is working. It's a friend of mine... Uh, from a musician in England introduced me to Nick Cook, the the senior aviation editor for James Defense Weekly, and then he, he was a big Doobie Brothers fan, a big Steely Dan fan. It's funny how all this stuff works. That's on. weird, yeah. And so he said, "Hey, uh, I got something I'd like you to see." He said, "Did you know that you could track the space shuttle with an S-band radar?" Well, the Navy uses a, the their the frequency band for their air fleet defense is S-band, so. I said, hmm, that's an interesting idea, because I, I was reading all the aviation magazines and all the military magazines, because I was taking the information that was coming out when digital was first becoming um, you know, a reality, mm-hmm. and figuring out how to take that technology from the military and introduce it into the music world, working for Roland and Akai, and you know, designing right. um, you know, digital recorders, et cetera, et cetera. So... I said, mm. So I was reading in Aviation Week about the Aegis weapon system, and I went, wait a minute, S-band radar, track the space shuttle. So then I go over to JPL, a guy, mine, a friend of mine who's a steel player. He was on the Viking program, uh, Super George John, they call him. Okay. And so I went over to see John, and I said, listen, can, I, you got to do some math for me. And he said, well, i got a couple of MIT guys, so I'll get back to you in a week. So they did the math. They said, you know, it looks like you're looking at trying to track something with a very low radar cross-section. I said, yes, that's true. He said, well, it's doable. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the paper. Wow. Gave it mm-hmm. to a congressman buddy of mine that I'd done a lot of work with um, in law enforcement. I was with LAPD for 15 years. And so then he sends it to the vice chairman of the Armed Services Committee. So who's this guy? It's like Boeing, Lockheed. No, he's right. a guitar player for the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> so I get a call from these guys and say, would you be willing to serve on the Armed Services Committee as a consultant for missile defense? I said, yeah, I guess so. What does that mean? So, you know, they strap you in the chair. You, know, <laughs> you go through the whole process. And yeah. next thing I know, I'm at the Pentagon and I'm at Lawrence Livermore. 
working on high energy diode pumped high solid state lasers. So, wow. so I don't even know what you just said. I don't either. Like that's wow. that's just how above the. Well, I, I know that you said radar is just like electric guitar on steroids. That's and correct. How, and how that's even like I yeah. That, well, that I'll explain sense. something really quick to you, and this is pretty easy. Okay. Since frequency is the glue that holds the universe together, that's yes. what holds everything together. So if you understand that basic principle, for instance, you, you play guitar, you know somebody that does, mm-hmm. and when you strike an A string, it vibrates at 440 times a second, right? They call it A440, which means it vibrates at 440 times a second. Okay, so what's, what would be the first harmonic? Oh, <laughs> 880. Got it. Okay. What would be the next time? In other words, add 440, yes. 440. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's logarithmic. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Now, if you multiply 440 times 10 to the 23rd power, what do you get? The color green. Green is a super harmonic of A440 because it's all on this linear frequency scale. So once you understand all the physics of that, yeah. then everything, then yes, a radar is just an electric guitar on steroids because the physical principles of, of electromagnetism and et cetera, and generating current is that it's the same. Hmm. It's the same stuff. That easy. <laughs> See, well, if you would have known, um, you would have written that. Yeah, that, absolutely. I absolutely. totally would have. Thank you. You would have been strapped in the chair. They were asking about you and Joe Walsh and what you did in the road, you know? Uh, we've got, oh, they uh, don't want to know. Skunk, tonight, tonight at Shank Hall, yes. tell us about the show. What, what, tell us, like, what do you do? What do you play? Who's with you? What do you do with the audience? All that stuff. Well, we have a, there's a, we have a record out called Speed of Heat. And I don't know if you have a copy of it, but if you look on the cover, you'll notice behind my picture, there are a lot of equations. Okay. I, did, I don't have the okay. cover. Well, I'm looking at it right now. Okay. Okay. And the speed of heat is the thermodynamic and the, the uh, aerodynamic phenomenon that happens when a, something moves to the atmosphere close to Mach 1, speed of sound. So the equations on that. I got a call from my buddy of mine at Northrop about five months ago. He says, Skunk. I said, what, boss? His call sign's Bam Bam. Hey, Bam Bam, what's going on? He says, well, I'm looking at this album cover, and I know what, you, I know what this is. I said, what? He says, those are oblong pressure wave uh, <laughs> equations. He says, I know what you're talking about here. So we, the, the whole speed of heat thing is kind of... Uh, because of the aviation stuff. Right. Plus, DJ, um, our keyboard player, is a big aviation buff. So anyway, so we're, we did this record, and we are out been on tour. We've been in Japan. We've been in the East Coast. We've been touring the record. And we're just going to play the record with a couple of extra tunes that are kind of fun. But the band is frightening. I mean, C.J. Vanston, who's a producer in his own right, Toto, Joe Cocker, uh, like me, the first call studio cat, you know, was that kind of band. The drummer, Mark Damien, is, again, frightening. He's first call studio guy. The bass player is uh, not only an amazing bass player and a killer singer, but he's the bass player for the Detroit Symphony. So all these guys, I mean, you know, you figure you might as well, you know, put yeah. together a, a group of folks who have some serious horsepower. So that's what we'll do. We'll just play it. And there's a million stories that go on with how we met and the stuff that we do. And we just tell a lot of stories and have a good time. It's kind of like, welcome to our living room. Now, how did you, uh, back in, if I remember correctly, you were a Steely Dan guy. And then at some point you segued to the Doobie Brothers. 
Did you leave? Right. Did you officially like leave those guys, Becker and Fagan? Were you just were you part of that whole thing and then said, "No, nah, I'm going to do this"? Was it an official thing, or you just decided to kind of freeform and be a contract player, if you will? Well, it was a, kind of a little bit of both. I mean, I was in three bands at the same time. I was in Steely Dan, going touring with the Doobie Brothers, and not playing pedal steel for uh, Linda Ronstadt and her band. So the 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 uh, Steely Dan was opening for the Doobie Brothers, and more and more and more they said, would you like to sit in and play like one song, three songs, mm-hmm. five songs? Would you be willing to play drums for you know a quarter of the set? Yeah, let's do that. And so finally it got to the point where I was out touring with them, and then we were in Nebworth, I think it was, in England at the festival there, and I was talking to, I think it was, it was Donald, and said, we just don't want to tour anymore. I said, eh, okay. So I hung up the phone, and I said, well... And I was touring with the Doobies at the time. And I said, well, I think that's kind of it for me and Steely Dan. I said, well, now you're in the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> wow, so now you're official. Okay, uh-huh. okay let's go have lunch and, yeah, <laughs> and there you go. You, there, was no, there was no secret handshake or anything. You were just officially a member of the Doobie I, Brothers. No, absolutely, but I had spent so much time with them, not only on the road, but I had done a, some right. studio work for the, as you know, I'm a, I'm a studio sausage, so I was in there, you know. <laughs> You've literally worked with everybody. When you look at your bio here, like everybody, well, who's your favorite? Like if you had to pick one of those sessions and someone that you were just in there jamming with, who? Have to be Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, nice. There's nobody like that on this planet. That If there is such a thing as an angel, it's her. Really? You know, oh, incredible. And the other person I loved working with was Donna Summer. I mean, because we, we went on a little bit of a, a journey when Giorgio Moroder first called me. You know, again, it's the, can you, you know, through the session, I get the call from my answering service. I said, can you call? so I call him back. He says, I'm doing this disco record and with this lady named Donna Summer. I need you to come in and play. He says, call Jay Grade. So he, they call Jay and Jay says, call Skunk. Because <laughs> we've been doing, we've been making disco records and it's just, mm-hmm. it, it gets to the point where, okay, you know. Right. But anyway, so that, yeah, I'd have a lot of love for Dolly, and I thought she was baking cookies. <laughs> oh, man. Bringing in, we, yeah, we just said, we'll work for you. We don't care. You know, you're so awesome. Go back to the Steely Dan days. How did you, um, how'd you get together with those guys? Um, I was working, I was living in Boston. I was commuting back and forth between Boston and New York doing sessions. And um, we, I was at Intermediate Sound, and Gary Katz, who eventually ended up producing Steely Dan, was working with a band called The Bead Game from Boston. Really awesome band. And he, I was doing something, I think it was with Jonathan Edwards or something in another studio, and he had stuck his head in, and afterwards he said, listen, I'm doing this record with a lady named Linda Hoover in uh, New York, and the two songwriters uh, you know, are writing most of the material, these two fellows named uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, would you come down to New York and the sessions and I said sure I got out the book and I booked it got mm-hmm. on the train went down and after about a, a week um, Donald said well we never really ever heard anybody play guitar like you do on especially on our material and I said well I've never heard material like this. this is pretty awesome so we made a you know a virtual blood back that the first people that pass go Right. Calls everybody else. So they get a publishing deal with ABC Dunhill Records in Los Angeles. I'm moving out to Los Angeles to play. Um, I was in the house band at the Palomino Club. And I was on the road with uh, Johnny Rodriguez and, and going to go play with Linda Ronstadt. So everything came together. And 
I guess we were trying to figure out whether we should call the band Big Nardo in the eighth grade or Steely Dan, but we figured Big Nardo in the eighth grade was too long. Uh, fit very long, cover. yeah. So that's kind of how it all worked out. And, and we set the band up to rehearse in Jay Lasker's studio, the president uh, office, who was the president of ABC. And every night we would break up the gear down, and Jay never knew about it until one night. I guess we'd you know had a couple of extra drinks, and Jay comes in and says, what the hell is this crap? <laughs> and, and Gary Katz said, well, we have this band. All right, let me listen to it. You know, Jay was the quintessential yeah. you know, record guy, Big sure, Cigar. Sure, Big Cigar. He says, all right, I'll sign him. And well, that's, that's it. And then the rest the story, is history. Yeah. You know, there comes a point in every professional musician where they realize that they know when their calling is right there, when they know it's more than a hobby what I do. Do you remember when you realized that your guitar playing, that was what you were going to be destined to do for the rest of your life? I'm not sure if I had that the sort of that ultimate the calling? complete res, re, revelation. But when I was 11 years old, I grew up in Mexico City. So we had a, myself and Abraham Laboreal, who I don't know if you know. Who he oh, is, yeah. He's, he's been with McCartney forever, right? Yeah he's, yeah, he's the best. Well, Abe yeah. and I had a surf band together when we were kids in Mexico City called the Tarantulas. So we decided, okay, we knew a guy who 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 worked at Radio Exito, which was the big radio station in Mexico City, and they played American rock for four hours a day. So we went up there with our gear and played our hit, which wasn't a hit. I mean, mm. we played Tarantula, which was our surf tune. Okay. They cut, and of course, you were, you're old enough to know what this is. They cut a lacquer. Oh, yeah. Live, you know, an actual, wow. an acetate. Yeah. When we were there, and they started to play it. And now, all of a sudden, you know, I'm 11 years old, 12 years old. I'm in this band. We're working, playing a lot of parties, playing a couple of clubs every wow. once in a while. And, and between that and the the Mexican rock and roll scene was huge. I mean, there were bands that you obviously, I don't think you would know, but bands like Los Hooligans and Los Locos de Ritmo and, and Los Opsen Boys, these bands were really big in Mexico. And two of the people in the Hooligans, Johnny Ortega and uh, Humberto Cisneros, kind of reached out and said, hey, maybe you can play with us. So I started doing shows with these guys, and they were like, you know, the 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 top players in Mexico. So wow. you may not have had that epiphany, but, but the the epiphany was there all along. I mean, you were a kid. Yeah. You were just a little kid. Yeah. Uh, you were so young, but so talented that these young, older guys want well, you to be a... I really talented. I knew three chords. And, you know, <laughs> well, it was enough. Probably three absolutely. more than most <laughs> you know? of them knew. And then uh, at one point, you, you transitioned, though. When did you... So Mexico City is where you grew up. When did you yeah. move to the United States? Well, I... I um, my dad said, you need a good education, and I don't think you're getting it at the American school down there. So first of all, you're going to go to the British Embassy School, Greengates, which was an interesting adventure. And then you're going to prep school in, the, in Connecticut. Okay. So I started commuting from Mexico City to Connecticut to go to school and, and, coming, and then going back. And, but because the vacations were short for Christmas and spring break, I was most of the time was staying in New York. So then I started working at Jimmy's Music Shop on Forty Eighth Street, and that's and where Dan Armstrong's. Is that where you met Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. Jimmy James. Yeah. What was his name? Jimmy James. He called himself Jimmy James. Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, and that's where I met him. And that's when Dan Armstrong reached out and said, "Hey, I'm not getting any guitars out of Jimmy's. I'll pay you five bucks an hour." 
Now, in 1964, that was big money. Yeah. Minim, minimum wage was a buck and a quarter, right? And Probably I thought less. that was yeah. hot. You know, <laughs> I'm in show business. I'm carrying yeah. 12, you know, 100 twin reverbs up six flights of stairs in, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of August. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah show business. Yeah. Like the guy who cleans up behind the elephants. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I'm in the circus. Show business? Yeah. yeah. So, um, but playing, working in the music stores in the daytime and playing gigs at night in the clubs and playing, you know, doing a lot of weddings and all that kind of stuff. And, sure. and, and hanging out. Once when I was at Danny's, it, it was like the College of Musical Knowledge. I mean, I even met Andre Segovia because wow. I repaired a guitar for him. Um, everybody was hanging out there, uh, Mike Bloomfield and Frank Zappa, and everybody would just hang out there. And, of course, the great players like Sam Brown and Eddie Deal and all these unreal Les Paul. It was just, it was, I, I couldn't have asked for anything, anything better. It was really like going to the College wow. of Musical Knowledge. Well, we're excited uh, for the show tonight, Shank Hall. It's going to be just, an, and, and as you, I love the, I love the word you used, um, what was it? Uh, frightening, I think, when you mentioned some of the oh, other bands. guys. Why would you use that? Is it frightening, like, to be up on stage with players who are as good as you are? In other words, you've got to elevate your game? Because I, I thought that was just an interesting adjective to use. Well, I always say frightening because I can't figure out another good adjective to describe the unbelievable level of musicianship that these folks have. And it's always a, a surprising. That's the thing. Oh, you never know where it's going to go. I mean, one day, I, I guess it was just before we went to Japan, we did a couple of shows on the East Coast. And and Hank, our bass player, just decided to do a bass solo. Okay. <laughs> We're sitting there and I'm going, oh, my God. <laughs> Listen to this. Yeah, but uh, you're saying, oh, my God, not because he's not supposed to be doing that. Because no, because we don't care. Right. I mean, that's the whole yeah. thing. If you're playing with the Cats and everybody's good, it doesn't make any difference. You have this tremendous amount of trust. Um, he, he started to, and then he started to solo and sing Blackbird. I went, okay, <laughs> yeah. great. You know, and then too. the drummer turns out to be a lead singer, and he's singing Insecurity on the record. I mean, okay, yeah. what, whatever it takes. Right. Whatever it takes. Well, tonight, Shank Hall, thank you so much for coming in today. Well, thank you for your hospitality again. I really appreciate it. Jeff Skunk Baxter.